I love that hymn. We're going to come back to it in a few minutes. I'd invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 22. Today we're going to read from Acts 22 verse 23 to Acts 23, 11. And I'd like to begin by reading the transcript of a historic letter that some of you, most of you, no doubt will recognize. Quote, Soldiers, sailors, and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers-in-arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940 and 41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Now that is, of course, the famous order of the day from June 6th, 1944, written by General Dwight D. Eisenhower. It was printed out and distributed to some... 175,000 soldiers for them to read on the eve of the Normandy invasion. But that wasn't all. These soldiers who had amassed in southern England also received an in-person visit from General Eisenhower. There's an iconic picture of this, which I actually have, have framed in my garage. And um, you can easily find it online. And in this picture, General Eisenhower, who served as the supreme commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force, is standing encircled by paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division just moments before they boarded airplanes to participate in the first assault of occupied France on D-Day. And my thought in bringing this up is to ask you to imagine how encouraging it must have been for these soldiers 
to receive an in-person visit from their supreme commander. They've gone through their checklist and gathered their gear and painted their faces and they're nervously waiting on orders, not knowing if the weather will cooperate. And now they have their supreme commander standing amongst them. I mean, just imagine the, the, the pride they would have felt that he's here with them. He's not on some stage behind security, but down in the midst of his troops. They could have reached out and shaken his hand. One of the paratroopers in this picture, I've forgotten his name, but if you see it, he has a little cardboard sign around his neck and it says 23. And he recounted, he said, you know what I talked with the general about? Fishing. What an encouragement to those soldiers to to read those words of confidence from their general and also to see and speak with him in the flesh. Now all this came to my mind because of what we have in our passage today where the Apostle Paul receives an in-person visit from his supreme commander, the Lord Jesus. Paul is locked in a Roman fortress. And and unlike these paratroopers whose campaign was about to begin, these paratroopers who were green and optimistic and, and had yet to experience the horrors of battle, unlike them, Paul had already suffered much. His life had been threatened in Damascus and Jerusalem in Acts 9. He was persecuted and run out of Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra in Acts 14. He'd experienced the loss of a close friend and co-worker, Barnabas, in Acts 15. He'd been beaten by rods and imprisoned at Philippi in Acts 16. He was again threatened at both Thessalonica and Berea in Acts 17. He faced an angry mob in Ephesus in Acts 19. He was plotted against by Jews in Greece in Acts 20. He'd been kicked and beaten by a mob in the temple in Jerusalem and then arrested, which we've just seen in Acts 21. And what we'll see today is that Paul barely escapes being scourged by the Romans, only to then infuriate the Jewish leaders who become violent and desired to rip Paul to pieces. And then he goes back to his cell. This is what the apostle to the Gentiles has already seen. And now he finds himself bruised and sore and exhausted and frustrated and alone in this Roman fortress. But again, like those paratroopers, he is going to be visited by his supreme commander. And he will be encouraged to take heart. And he'll hear that this isn't the end for you. There is more work to be done. We're going to look at that in a moment. But first, let's pray. Father God, in this text, we will read 
of scholars, brilliant men, who knew so much about you and yet did not know you because their eyes were blind and their hearts were hard. Father, would you pray, I, I, I pray that you would work this morning, that you through your word would open eyes that are blind and soften hearts that are callous. Father, would we behold Jesus and would we find strength and nourishment through the promise in his word we ask in his name. Amen. Acts 22, I'm beginning in verse 20. Let's, let's just do 22, 22. We'll start there. Just Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing, who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned. When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid, for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him. And commanded the chief priest and all the council to meet. They brought Paul down and set him before them. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil 
of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, so there are 18 verses that I am going to move swiftly through. Uh, my apologies if you wanted to hear a whole lot about Roman citizenship or this uh, Paul standing before the Sanhedrin. I, I, I'm going to spend a little time there, but I, I want plenty of time to, to focus on verse 11. First thing we see is Paul and the Romans in verses 23 through 29. Paul had been allowed to defend himself before the crowd where he recounts his conversion, something we looked at last week. But this does nothing to calm them. Instead, they're ready to kill him just as they killed Stephen. And so the Roman officer, the tribune, ordered that Paul be brought inside the fortress. Well, once inside, things remain bad. They go from bad to bad. Because the tribune gives the order that Paul should be examined by flogging to find out why the crowd was so upset. Remember, Paul had spoken to the crowd in Hebrew. The Romans didn't speak Hebrew. They had no idea what he said. They just knew that the crowd was angry and that Paul must be guilty of something. And it was the tribune's job to keep the peace. And so he decided that a good Flogging might produce an honest answer from Paul. Now this flogging is the same type of punishment that was done to the Lord prior to his crucifixion. It's, you'll see the word flagellum used. I've heard it described as the, the cat of nine tails. That, that horrible whip is what would be used. No one would have been surprised if Paul did not survive this flogging. 
And Paul is stretched out with arms and legs tied in leather straps, his back fully exposed. And he turns to the centurion and says, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? Right? That, he knew the answer. And he knew the answer would be a game changer. It, it was unlawful. In fact, anyone who punished a Roman citizen without due process could be punished themselves. If they flogged him without due process, they could be executed themselves. And so the centurion hears this and he's shocked and takes it very seriously and immediately goes to the tribune and informs him that Paul has identified as a Roman citizen. So the tribune immediately comes to Paul. They have a conversation. Are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am. I, too, am a citizen. I I bought mine for a large sum of money. Then Paul says, well, I was born a Roman citizen. This was something to be taken very seriously. Roman citizenship was something held by a tiny percentage of the population of the Roman Empire. To be a Roman citizen was to be counted among the elite of this society. And normally to gain this citizenship, you either had to pay an exorbitant amount of money or perform some great act of service to the empire. We know that this officer paid a great sum of money and we can assume that either Paul's Father or grandfather did one of those two things. Paid a large sum of money or did some great service for the empire because that citizenship is passed on to Paul. The rights and protections he was afforded as a citizen are so... are so impressive and and understood that in verse 29 we see that the the tribune is afraid for even binding Paul. That's how serious this is. And yet it was his job to keep the peace. And he really wants to understand why this crowd is so upset. But if he's going to, he's going to have to proceed very cautiously because he's dealing with a Roman citizen. Which brings us to Paul before the Sanhedrin. The following day, the tribune arranges that Paul speak with the chief priests and all the council. This is the Sanhedrin, the, the ruling body of Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem. And again, I'm going to move quickly through these verses. Paul opens by defending himself against the charges that had been made the previous day. But he's interrupted when the high priest commands someone near Paul to strike him in the mouth. Paul is in the middle of this sentence. Someone next to him hits him in the mouth. And Paul loses it. He loses control for a moment. He he responds and says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. And again, we're reminded 
There's only one perfect one. There's only one who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. There's only one, when he suffered, who did not threaten. We see another example here of the the Scripture not airbrushing the lives of the saints, and I'm, I'm grateful for that. If you would disagree with me here, I could say you're disagreeing with the Apostle Paul because once the Apostle Paul finds out the person he'd spoken to was the high priest, he admits his wrong. He says, I I didn't know who he was. Now, there's a lot of discussion here on how did Paul not know. Was it because he'd been away for so long? Was the high priest not wearing his high priestly vestments? There's a good argument to make that Paul had poor vision. You know, at at, at the end of Galatians 6, he talks about writing in very large letters. Maybe Paul did not recognize, couldn't see the high priest. Maybe he was being sarcastic or ironic. Like, this isn't how the high priest should act. I, I don't know. But he does acknowledge in verse 5 that he should not speak evil of a ruler of the people. Man, that is something that seems unthinkable to modern American culture, isn't it? No matter which side of the political aisle you are on, we are not to speak evil of the rulers of our people. We're called to speak respectfully of them. Paul acknowledges that to a man who just commanded one of his underlings to strike him in the mouth. And then Paul, again, I don't don't really know what to to do here. I, I don't know how sincere this is or if this is strategy. Paul divides the council. And he does so by bringing up the topic of the resurrection from the dead. He says this, and you see in the second half of verse 6, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. If, if you want to know why I'm on trial, it's not because I snuck a Gentile into the temple. It's not because I'm denigrating the laws of Moses. This is why I'm on trial. And this sparks a massive debate among the council. You've got your Sadducees and your Pharisees. The, Luke helps us here. The, the Sadducees, he says in verse 8, the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. So in this group, you've got two divisions. The Sadducees who would be the, the modern-day secular materialists who deny Anything supernatural. And then you have the conservatives, the Pharisees, the one who the ones who do believe in uh, the resurrection and angels and spiritual things. Paul says this and it divides them. And yet this is an unstable group. 
They're going back and forth with each other, but then somehow that, that hatred turns towards Paul. The dissension becomes violent, and the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commands his soldiers to go down and take Paul away by force and bring him back to the barracks. It really is shocking when you think about these two groups of people, not the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the Romans and the Jewish court. I mean, the Romans are wanting to maintain order, and they're upholding the law. They're honoring Paul's citizenship. They're wanting to promote justice. And yet, the Jewish court could not care less. They just want Paul dead so that they can spit on his grave. And we see just how hard their hearts have become to the things of God. This brings us to the final scene that I wanted to focus most on. The diligent tribune has, has to be frustrated, has to be at a loss. He's just trying to keep the peace and discover if Paul has really committed a crime, but he's got to be careful because Paul's a Roman citizen. But his efforts only spark another uh, they spark another mini-riot. And so he commands his soldiers to take Paul back to the barracks. Imagine the rest of the day for Paul. Imagine this, this meeting took place in the morning. He's got the rest of the day, the afternoon, and early evening just sitting there. What, what would have been going through his mind? Well, I, you think of what he'd hoped to have accomplished. I mean, Paul had been through all these cities in Asia Minor and Greece where he'd spoken of the forgiveness of sins and the peace with God that comes through the blood of the Son of God. He was calling people to rest in that work alone and to repent of sins and to be baptized And these labors had been fruitful. Churches had been established in in Ephesus and Philippi and Berea and Corinth. The Spirit of God had worked powerfully. And I'm sure he hoped for something similar in Jerusalem. Maybe some second Pentecost. What happened as soon as he arrived? He found a compromising church full of legalistic believers who were suspicious of him because he loved the Gentiles and he worked among them. And and then there was the plan we talked about a couple weeks ago to assuage their worries, and that hadn't worked. And just now he'd been given the opportunity to speak with the Jewish leaders but that blew up in his face. If I were Paul, my hopes would have been dashed. I'm sure he was frustrated, exhausted in every way. 
But what happens in verse 11? The supreme commander shows up to strengthen and encourage this poor, beat-up soldier. Luke records in verse 11, The following night the Lord stood by him. This is not a vision like he'd had in Acts 18 in Corinth. This wasn't a trance that he fell into uh, as he did in the temple when he received his commission to the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus stood by him. In the same way that he stood by his disciples at the end of the Gospels. You remember, he he appears to his disciples and he says to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The Lord Jesus came and stood by him. You might respond and say, well, John, that's great for the disciples. And it's great for Paul. But what about us? I don't see the Lord standing among us. I've I've never seen him. I wish I would, but I haven't. He must be distant today. I would say, dear Christian, your Lord is not far off. He is closer than you know. And for you to understand this, I need you to know a bigger theological term, one that if you mention at dinner bell, it, it might, might not be understood or received. I want you to know about the hypostatic union of Jesus Christ. H-Y-P-O-S-T-A-T-I-C, the hypostatic union. This is a classic Orthodox Christian belief, which teaches that there is The one person of Christ has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. One person, two natures, and these two natures are joined without mixture or separation. Each retains its own attributes, meaning that the divine nature does not become semi-human, And the human nature does not become semi-divine. Which is why we can say that the Lord Jesus is truly God and truly man. He's not some hybrid. So what does this mean as it pertains to Christ's presence? Well, it means that his physical body, the one that appeared to disciples, the one that appeared to the Apostle Paul in this text, the one that 
grew tired and hungry. That body is in heaven. That, that physical body is not everywhere. It can't be everywhere any more than your or my physical body could be everywhere. It is in heaven and will remain in heaven until he returns at the final resurrection of the dead. But what about his divine nature? Though his human body, his human nature is localized in heaven, he is also truly God. And that means that he is omnipresent. And so we can rightly say that the Lord is forever and always with us. This is how Jesus can say in Matthew 18 that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Or at the end of the Great Commission when he promises, I am with you always to the end of the age. We are never apart from the divine nature of our Lord. And listen, this is what makes the Lord's Supper so special. The Lord's Supper isn't just some memorial that we hold once a month in memory of the Lord's sacrifice for our sin. We believe that when we come to the table, that the Lord Jesus is spiritually present and communes with us at this table. Why we'll at times refer to it as communion. There's an RTS professor by the name of Dr. Scott Swain who, who was helpful in talking about this. He says that in Exodus 20, in the context of establishing the Passover meal, the Lord says, In every place where I caused my name to be remembered, I will come to you. And bless you. In every place where God causes his name to be remembered, where he causes the Passover meal to be observed, he says, I will come to you and I will be present among you and bless you. Essentially, that is the idea that Jesus is taking at the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, he has promised that through the act of breaking the bread and drinking from the cup, that he himself would be present with us to to assure us that by his death all our sins are forgiven and that by his death all the blessings of the new covenant are ours and he is there to feed us spiritually as we draw upon his saving Nourishment through faith. And he's there to increase a a hunger in us for the feast of the wedding supper when he returns. There's, There's so much you could say here. But believer, your Lord is not far off. He he hears your prayers. And to to quote the, the hymn that Molly played prior to the sermon. 
It's, it would be how from a foundation if you were curious. But one stanza says, Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. The Lord Jesus came and stood by Paul and spoke to him. He didn't just stand there, but he spoke and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the fact about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I know something cool about this this word that is used in in verse 11. Take courage. That that word in the Greek is tharseo. It's translated in my Bible as take courage. It could also be translated as take heart, be of good courage. You know that there's only one person in the entire New Testament that says that word. Only one. He'll call to the bedridden paralytic. And he'll say, take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. To the woman who bled for 12 years, he says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. To his frightened disciples, as he came to them across the stormy sea, he said, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. In the upper room, on the night of his crucifixion, he said, take heart, I have overcome the world. This word is the Lord's unique word for all those feeble, weak ones who are looking to Him alone as their only help. And here is Paul, alone, locked in these barracks. And the Lord comes to him and stands by him and says, Take heart, I'm going to send you to Rome. Just as you've testified to the the facts about me in Jerusalem, you must testify also in Rome. Go back to my opening illustration. Use your imaginations. What if General Eisenhower told one of these paratroopers of the 101st Airborne? What if he looked at him before he got on that plane and he said, I've got work for you to do back in Washington after this campaign in Europe is over? And remember, we're still using our imaginations. Pretend that General Eisenhower had the power to guarantee that happened. To to guarantee that that paratrooper would make it back home in one piece. How would the power and promise of his supreme commander change that soldier's experience? Even if that paratrooper found himself in a foxhole in Bastogne in the dead of winter in the midst of an artillery barrage. He could trust the promise that had been spoken to him and face those days with courage. 
for the rest of the book of Acts, the five chapters that remain, we're going to see Paul continue on towards Rome. And he will face shipwrecks and snake bites, but he will never forget this word of promise that he'd received from the Lord. May we as well. May we rely on the word of God. May we remember the testament of his fatherly love for us. May we, like Paul, remember what he said and cling to those promises even on the hardest days. May we meditate on those promises and humbly acknowledge that if the Apostle Paul needed encouragement, and if the Apostle Paul needed to be reminded of the words of the Lord, then so do you and I. Let's pray. Father God, may we remember that you are near. You are not distant. You are not some divine clockmaker who wound up the world and set it on a shelf and walked away. But your wonderful providence extends to the numbers of hairs on our head and the sparrow that falls to the ground. Father, you are near as is your son through his divine nature. May we take comfort from your presence and may we remember the words you have spoken to us. May we look to them that they would give us strength for whatever days lie ahead. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.